Recorded live. Hey, it's, uh... Ouch, just stubbed my toe. Yeah! That's right. It's just stubbed my toe. Michael the Hermit Adams. And it's old religion, dystopia, knowing versus belief. It, uh... I don't know, the 22nd? 22nd of uh, May, allegedly, 2017. Get back into the reading from uh, past, uh, rest in peace, David McGowan, and uh, his book, Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon. Laurel Canyon, Cohort, Ops, Dark Hearts of the Hippie Dream. And uh hey, let's hear it for Arter Man. Buffalo Man. I get my eyes focused here. All right, here we go. Power to the people. Call this a counterculture question mark. Everyone there had one at one time or another been into Satanism or like myself had dabbled around the edges of the edges for the kicks, let's say the skin. Quote everyone there had at one time or another been into Satanism or like myself, had dabbled around the edges for sexual kicks. Sammy Davis Jr., referring to the victims at um, 150, well, 100050 Silo Drive. In the previous chapter, we met a sampling of some of the most successful and influential rock music superstars who emerged from Laurel Canyon during its glory days. But these were, alas, more than just musicians and singers and songwriters who had become, who come together in the canyon. They were destined to become the spokesmen, the de facto leaders of a generation of disinfected youth. As Carl Gottlieb noted in David Crosby's co-written autobiography, quote, the unprecedented mass appeal of the new rock and roll gave the singers a voice in public affairs, in the quote. That, of course, makes it all the more curious that these icons were to an overwhelming degree the sons and daughters of of military-slash-intelligent complex and the science of families 
that have wielded vast wealth and power in this country for a very long time. It could, of course, be argued that there were there was nothing necessarily nefarious in the fact that so many of these icons of a past generation hailed from military-slash-intelligence families. Perhaps it could be suggested that they had embarked on their own chosen careers as a form of rebellion against the values of their parents. And that, I suppose, might be true in a couple of cases. But what are we to conclude from the fact that such an astonishing number of these folks, along with their girlfriends, wives, and managers, etc., hailed from similar backgrounds. Or background. Are we to believe that the only kids from that era who had musical talent were the sons and daughters of Navy admirals, chemical warfare engineers, and Air Force intelligence officers? Or are they just the only ones who were signed to lucrative contracts and relentlessly promoted by their labels and the media? If these artists were rebelling against rather than subtly promoting the values of their parents, then why didn't they ever speak out against the people they were allegedly rebelling against? Why did Jim Morrison ever denounce or even mention his father's key role in escalating one of America's bloodiest illegal wars? Why did Frank Zappa never pen a song exploring the horrors of chemical warfare? Though he did pen a charming little ditty entitled Ritual Dance of the Child Killer, and which Mama's and the Papa's song was it that laid waste to the values and actions of John Phillips' parents and in-laws, in which interview exactly, in which interview exactly did David Crosby and Stephen Steeles disown the family values that they were raised with? We will be taking a much closer look at these performers as well as many of their contemporaries as we endeavor to determine how and why the youth, quote, counterculture, end of quote, of the 1960s was given birth. According to virtually all the accounts that I have read, this was essentially a spontaneous, organic response to the war in Southeast Asia and to the prevailing social conditions of the time. Conspiracy theorists, in quotes, of course, have frequently opined that what began as a legitimate movement was at some point co-opted and undermined by intelligence operations such as 
COINTELPRO. Entire books, for example, have been written examining how presumably virtuous musical artists were subject to FBI harassment and or slash whacked by the CIA. Here we will, as you may have already ascertained, take a decidedly different approach. The question that we will be tackling is more deeply troubling. One, quote, what if the musicians themselves and various other leaders and founders of the movement, end quote, were every bit as much part of the intelligence community as the people who were supposedly harassing them, end quote. What if, in other words, the entire youth culture of the 1960s was created not as a grassroots challenge to the status quo, but as a cynical exercise to, in discrediting and marginalizing the budding anti-war movement and creating a fake opposition that could be easily controlled and led astray? And what if the harassment of those folks were subjected to was largely a stage-managed show designed to give the leaders of the counterculture some much-needed, quote, street cred, end of quote. What if, in in reality, they were pretty much all playing playing on the same team? I should probably mention here that, contrary to popular opinion, the hippie-slash-flower-child movement was not synonymous with the anti-war movement. As time passed, there was, to be sure, a fair amount of overlap between the two movements, and the mass media outlets, as is their wont, won't, did their vast best, or their very best, to portray the flower power generation as a torch as the torchbearers of the anti-war movement. After all, a ragtag band of unwashed, drug-fueled, long-haired, sporting flowers and peace symbols was far easier to marginalize than, say, a bunch of respectable college professors and their concerned students. The reality, however, is that the anti-war movement was already well underway before the first aspiring, quote, hippie, end of quote, arrived in the Laurel Canyon. The first Vietnamese War, quote, teach-in, end of quote, was held on the campuses, on the campus of the University of Michigan in March of 2065. The first organized walk on Washington occurred just a few weeks later. Needless to say, there were no hippies in attendance at either event. The that quote problem and the quote would soon be rectified, and the anti war crowd, those who were serious about ending the bloodshed in Vietnam, anyway, would be none too appreciative. As Barry Miles has written 
in his coffee table book, Hippie. There were some hippies involved in the anti-war protest, uh, quote, particularly after the police riot in Chicago 1968 when so many people got injured. But on the whole, the movement activists looked on hippies with disdain, in the quote. Peter Coyote, Coyote, narrating the documentary Hippies on the History Channel, added that, quote, some, of the, some on the left even theorized that the hippies were the end result of a plot by the CIA to neutralize the anti-war movement with LSD, turning potential protesters into self-absorbed navel gazers, end quote. An exacerbated Abby Hoffman once described the scene as he remembered it thusly. Quote, there were all these activists, you know, Berkeley radicals, white panthers, all trying to stop the war and change things for the better. Then we got flooded with all these flower children, in quotes, who were in into drugs and sex, where the hell did the hippies come from, end of quote. Just, okay, as it turns out, they came initially, at least, from a rather private, isolated, largely self-contained neighborhood in Los Angeles, known as Laurel Canyon. In contrast to the other canyons slicing through the Hollywood Hills, Laurel Canyon has its own market. The semi-famous Laurel Canyon store, its own deli and cleaners, its own elementary school, the Wonderland School, its own bouquet shops and salons, and in more recent years, his own celebrity rehab facility named, as you may have guessed, the Wonderland Center. During its heyday, the canyon even had its own management company, Lookout Management, to handle the talent. At one time, it even had its own newspaper. One other thing that I should add here is, that this has not been an easy line of research for me to conduct, primarily because I have been, for as long as I can remember, a huge fan of 1960s music and culture. Though I didn't come of age, so to speak, until the 1970s, I have always felt as though I was cheated by being denied the opportunity to experience firsthand the era that I was so obviously meant to inhabit. During my high school and college years, while my peers were mostly into faceless corporate rock, like Journey, Foreigner, Kansas, and Boston, etc., and perhaps worse yet, the twin horrors of new wave and disco music, I was faithfully spinning my Hendrix, Joplin, and Doors albums, which I still have 
and original vinyl versions while my color organ remember those competed with my black white and strobe lights i grew my hair long until well past the age when it should have been sheared off i may have even strung beads across the doorway of my bed, of my room but it is possible that I am confusing my life with Greg Brady, who, as I, as we all remember, once converted his dad's home office into a groovy bachelor pad. Anyway, one of the most difficult aspects of this journey that I have been on for the last 15 years or so has been watching so many of my formal idols and mentors fall by the wayside as it became increasingly clear to me that people who I once thought were the good guys were in reality something entirely different. The first fall, naturally enough, were the established figures, the politicians who I once quite foolishly looked up to as people who were fighting the good fight within the confines of the system to bring about real change. Though it is now it in though it now pains me to admit this, there was a time when I admired the likes of Agad, George McGovern and Jimmy Carter, as well as California Holes, Tom Hayden, and Jerry Brown. Oh, Jerry Brown, man. Jesuit. I even had high hopes, oh, so many years ago, for I am really admitting this in print, Bill Clinton. Since I mentioned Jerry. Governor Moonbeam Brown. By the way, I must now digress just a bit. As luck would have it, Jerry Brown was, curiously enough, a longtime resident of a little place called Laurel Canyon. As readers of my previous work, Program to Kill, may recall, Brown lived in Wonderland on Wonderland Avenue. Not too many doors down from 8763 Wonderland Avenue, the site of the infamous four-on-the-floor murders regarded by grizzled L.A. homicide detectives as one of the bloodiest and brutal multi-multiple murders, multiple murder in the city's very bloody history. As it turns out, the most bloody mass murder in L.A.'s history took place in one of the city's most serene, pastoral, and exclusive neighborhoods. And strangely enough, the case usually cited as the run-up for the title of the bloodiest crime scene, the murders of Stephen Parent, Sharon Tate, J. Uh, Singberg, 
Votek, Frykowski, and Abigail Folger at 10050 Silo Drive and Benedict Canyon, just a couple miles to the west of Laurel Canyon, had deep ties to the Laurel Canyon scene as well. As previously mentioned, victims Folger and Frykowski lived in Laurel Canyon at 2774 uh, Woodstock Road. That's right, Woodstock Road. And a rented home right across the road from a favored gathering spot for Laurel Canyon royalty. Many of the regular visitors to Cass Elliott's home, including a number of shady drug dealers, were also regarded visitors to the Folger slash Farkowski home. Farkowski's son, by the way, was stabbed to death on June 6, 1999, 30 years after his father met the same fate. Victim Jay Seabriggs, acclaimed hair salon, sat right at the mouth of Laurel Canyon, just below Sunset Strip, and it was Seabriggs, alas, who was credited for sculpting Jim Morris's famous mane. One of the investors in his uh, Seabrig international business venture was none other than Mr. John Phillips. Sharon Tate was also well known in the Laurel Canyon, in Laurel Canyon, where she was a frequent visitor to the homeless of friends like, not the homeless, to the homes of friends like John Phillips, Cass Elliott, and Abigail Folger. And when she was at Laurel Canyon, many of the Canyon regulars, both famous and infamous, made themselves at home at her place on Silo Drive. Canyonite Van Dyke Parks, for example, dropped by for a visit on the very day of the murders. And Denny Daughtry, the other papa, and the mamas and papas, has claimed that he and John Phillips were invited to the Silo Drive home on the night of the murder, but as luck would have it, they never made it over there, or made it over. Similarly, Chuck uh, Negron of the three of Three Dog Nights, a regular visitor to Wonderland Death House, had set up a drug buy on the night of the mass murder, but he fell asleep and never made it over. Along with the victims, the alleged killers also lived in and or where were very much a part of the Laurel Canyon scene. Bobby, quote, Cupid, uh, Basilio, Basilio, I don't know, something like that. Bozier, somebody say Bozier, Bozier, for example, lived in Laurel Canyon apartment during the early days of 1969. Charles Tex Watson, who allegedly led the death squad responsible for the carnage of Cecil Drive, 
or Silo Drive, not Cecil, Silo Drive, lived for a time in a house on, guess where, Wonderland Avenue. During that time, curiously enough, Watson co-owner, co-owned and worked in a wig shop in Beverly Hills, Crown Wig Creations Limited, that was located near the mouth of Benedict Canyon. Meanwhile, on one of Jay Sebring's primary, primary claims to fame was his expertise in crafting men's hair pieces, which he did in his shop near the mouth of Laurel Canyon. A typical day then in the late 1960s would find Watson crafting hair pieces for an upscale Hollywood clientele near Benedict Canyon, and then returning home to Laurel Canyon while Sebring crafted hair pieces for an upscale Hollywood clientele near Laurel Canyon, then return home to the Benedict Canyon. Let's just read that. Yes, I did. This is the reason why I'm not worried about uh, any kind of copyright business because no one had ever used my readings because <laughs> I'm so bad at it. <laughs> but that's okay. Because I have fun doing this and it's good for my MS and it's good for, for me. So, And hopefully those who are interested in this kind of stuff can do something with it. So. And then one crazy day, as we all know, one of them became a killer and the other his victim. But there's nothing odd about that, I suppose. So let's move on. Oh, wait a minute. We can't quite move on just yet, as I forgot to mention that Sebring's Benedict Canyon home in 9820 Easton Drive was a rather infamous Hollywood death house that had once belonged to Gene Harlow and Paul Byrne. The mismatched pair were wed in July 2, 1932, when Harlow already a huge star on the silver screen was just 21 years old. Just two months later, on September 5th, Byrne caught a bullet to the head in his wife's bedroom. He was found sprawled naked in a pool of his own blood, his corpse drenched with his wife's perfume. Upon discovery of the body, Burns Butler promptly contacted MGM's head of security, Whitey Hendry, who in turn contacted Louis B. Mayer and Iving Talberg. All three men decided upon descended upon the Benedict Canyon home to, you know, tidy up a bit. A couple hours later, they decided to contact the LAPD. This scene would be repeated years later when Seenbrake's friends would rush to the very same home to clean up before officers investigating the Tate murders arrived. Murderers arrived. Burns' death was, as so often the case, written off as suicide. 
It didn't last week. Didn't somebody else in Detroit was declared um, suicide, death suicide? Guy, you know, singer for lead, lead singer for Soundgarden and then for Audio Slave. And it just goes on and on and on. Okay, Burns' death was, as is so often the case, written off as suicide. His newlywed wife, strangely enough, was never called as a witness to at the inquest. Burns' other wife, which is to say his common-law wife, Dorothy Millett, reportedly brought in a Sacramento boarded a Sacramento River boat on September uh, 6, 2000, excuse me, 1932, the day after Paul's death. She was seen floating belly up in the Sacramento River. Her death, as would be expected, was also ruled a suicide. Less than five years later, Harlow herself dropped dead at the ripe old age of 26, at the time, authorities opted opted not to divulge the cause of death, but although it was later claimed that bad kidneys had done her in during her brief stay on this quote planet and a quote Harlow had cycled through three turbulent marriages, yet still found time to serve as godmother to Bugsy Siegel's daughter. Uh, Miley sent. Now we're seeing this whole scenario play out again, aren't we, with the 1990s and the this scene there, quote unquote, Seattle, and with guys like, uh, oh, what, Kurt Cobain? Not Kurt Cobain. Is that his name? Is I guess it's what's name. I can't remember. Yeah. And, um, Smell, uh, like Teen Spirit. What the heck? I can't remember. You know what? I stopped listening to music five years ago until just the recent, actually this past week, just to catch up with what's going on. And um, so, uh, yeah, so you got Soundgarden come from out of there. You got uh, so that's terrible. I can't remember the name. Dave Grohl's band, um, Kurt Cobain. Um, ah, you guys know. Doesn't really matter. What matters is that all these people that keep are going to end up being suicided, just like every other generation of, of quote unquote icons. And then, of course, it's always the same old bullshit line that, well, they just couldn't cope with reality, they couldn't cope with real life, all that other kind of jazz. <clears throat> well, let me tell you something. I don't buy into it myself anymore. Anyways, uh, 
So Burns was the most famous body to be hauled out of the Easton Drive house in the in a coroner's bag. It certainly wasn't the only one. Another man had reportedly committed suicide there as well in some unsuspected fashion or unspecified, yeah, specified fashion. Yet another unfortunate soul drowned in the home's pool. A maid was once found swinging from the end of a rope. Her death, needless to say, was ruled a suicide as well. That's a lot of blood for one home to absorb. But the house's morbid history, though a turnoff of many prospective residents, was reportedly exactly what attracted Jace Sebring to the property. His murder was further darkened, would further darken the black cloud hanging over the home. As Laurel Canyon chronicler Michael Walker has noted, LA's two most notorious mass murders, one in August 9th of 1969 and the other in July of 1981 both involved five victims though at Wonderland one of the five miraculously survived provided rather morbid bookends for a Laurel Canyon's glorious years Walker though like others who have chronicled that the time and place treats these brutal crimes as though They were unfortunate aberrations. The reality, however, is that the nine bodies recovered from Celo Drive and Wonderland Avenue constitute just the tip of a very large and very bloody iceberg. To particularly illustrate the point, Diane Linkletter, daughter of famous editor Art Linkletter, legendary comedian Lenny Bruce, screen idol Sal Mineo, Starlet Inger Stevens, and silent film star Roman Navarro all have something in common. All were found dead in their homes, either in or at the mouth of the Laurel Canyon. And the decades between 19... 66 1976 and all five were in all likelihood murdered in those Laurel Canyon homes only two of them are officially listed as murder victims Minio who was stabbed to death outside his home at six at 85 63 Holloway Drive on February 12 1976 and Navarro Novaro, who was killed near the country store in a decidedly ritualistic fashion on the eve of Halloween in 1968. Inger Stevens' death in her home, that's right, Inger Stevens, and uh-huh. her home at 8,000 Woodrow Wilson Drive on April 
1970, which is a wall purchase next on the cult calendar. It's W-A-L-P-U-R-G-I-S-N-A-C-H-T. Was officially a suicide, though why she opted to propel herself through a decorative glass screen as part of that suicide remains a mystery. Perhaps she just wanted to leave behind a gruesome crime scene or an and simple overdose can do that, you know, blood, bloodless and boring. Diane Linkletter, according to legend, sailed out a window over Shoreham's Towers apartment because in her LSD adult state, she thought she could fly. She knew this because Art himself told us that it was so, and because the story was retold throughout the 70s as a cautionary tale about the dangers of drugs. We, we, what we weren't told, however, is that Diane, born curiously enough on Halloween Day, 1948, the same year that the Church of Satan was originally truly established in no places in Toledo, Ohio. And it wasn't and then out in Los or in San Francisco, but it was actually in Toledo, Ohio. <laughs> oh gosh. All right, let's let's get back into this wonderful bit of started history. So uh I was curiously love warned uh uh, a Halloween day in 1948, wasn't alone when she plunged six stories to her death on the morning of October 4, 1969. Au contraire, she was with a gent by the name of Edward Durston, who, in a completely unexpected turn of events, accompanied actress Carol Wayne to Mexico some 15 years later. Kara, alas, perhaps weighed down by her enormous breasts, managed to drown in barely a foot of water, while Mr. Durston promptly disappeared. As would be expected, he was never questioned by authorities about Wayne's curious death. After all, it is quite common for the same guy to be the sole witness of two separate accidental deaths. Art also neglected to mention that just weeks before Diane's curious death, another member of the Linkletter clan, Art's son-in-law, John Zwyer, Z-W-Y-E-R, caught a bullet to the head in a in the backyard of his Hollywood Hills home, but that of course was unconnected was an unconnected suicide. I'm not even going to discuss here the circumstances of Lenny Bruce's death for acute morphine poisoning on August the third, nineteen sixty six, because to be perfectly honest I don't know too many people who don't already assume that Lenny was whacked. 
I'll just note here that his funeral was well intended by the Laurel Canyon rock rock icons and control over his unreleased material fell into the hands of a guy by the name of Frank Zappa. Another unsavory character named Phil Spector, whose crack team of studio musicians dubbed the Wrecking Crew, were the actual musicians playing on many studio recordings by such Laurel Canyon bands as the Monkees, the Birds, the Beach Boys, and the Mamas and Papas. Dig. Chapter 3, Dig, The Laurel Canyon Death List. I am ucked, F ucked. He, he auditioned for Neil Young for F ucks sake. Graham Nash explaining to another Michael Walker, to the author Michael Walker, how close Charles Manson was to the Laurel Canyon scene. Let's read that again. I mean, F. Uck, he auditioned for Neil Young for F. Uck's sake, Graham Nash. During the 10-year period during which Lenny Bruce, uh, Ramon Novero, Sal Menio, Diane Linkletter, Inger Stevens, Sharon Tate, uh, Jay Sebring, Botex Frykowski, Abigail Folger, all turned up dead, Numerous other people connected to the Laurel Canyon said did as well, often under very questionable circumstances. The list includes, but is certainly not limited to, all the following names. Mary Elizabeth, uh, hey, pronounce it, whose body was carved up and tossed into a heavy brush, the heavy brush along Mulholland Drive just west of Beaumont Drive on December 30th, 1968. Abe was just 17 at the time of her death, was the daughter of Hans Abe, who migrated to the U.S. from fascist Austria circa 1940. Shortly thereafter, Hans married a general foods heiress and managed and began studying psychological warfare at the Military Intelligence Center. After completing his training, he put his psychological warfare skills to use by creating 18 newspapers in occupied Germany under the direction, no doubt, of the OSS. Christine, Christine, or Kristen. Hinton. Or Hinton. Who was killed uh, in the head 
on collision, September the 30th, 1969. At the time, Hinton was the girlfriend of David Crosby and the founder and head of the Birds fan club. She was also the daughter of a career Army officer stationed in notorious Presidio military base in San Francisco. Another of Crosby's girlfriends from that same era was Shelley Rucker, who grew up in on the Hamilton Air Force Base in Marine County. Jane Doe, number 59, found dumped in the heavy undergrowth of Laurel Canyon in November 1969, within sight of where Habe had been dumped less than a year earlier. The teenage girl was never identified had been stabbed 157 times in the chest and throat. Alan, quote, Blind Owl, and the quote, Wilson, singer, songwriter, and guitarist for Laurel Canyon blue, blues rock band Can Heat, was found dead in his Topanga Canyon home on September 3rd in 1970. His death was written off as a suicide slash OD. Wilson had moved to Topanga Canyon after his band Laurel Canyon home on Lookout Mountain Avenue next door to Joni Mitchell and Graham Nash home burned to the ground. Blind Al or Alan Wilson was just 27 that sacred number they like to use in killing their their idols, uh, 27 years old at the time of his death. A little more than a decade later, Wilson's former bandmate Bob, quote, the bear, end of quote, hint, who had once acknowledged in an interview that he had partied in the canyons with various members of the Manson family, died of a heart attack at the ripe old age of 36. Jimi Hendrix, who reportedly briefly occupied the sprawling mansion just north of the log cabin after he moved to L.A. in 1968, died in London under serious questionable circumstances on September 18, 1970. Though he rarely spoke of it, Jimmy had served a stint in the U.S. Army with the 101st Airborne Division at Fort Campbell. His official records indicate that he was forced into service by the courts and then released after just one year when he promptly proved to be a poor soldier. One wonders, though, why he was assigned to such an elite division if he was indeed such a failure. One also wonders why he wasn't subjected to disciplinary measures rather than being handed a free pass out of his ostensibly court-ordered service. In any event, Jimmy himself once told reporters that he was given 
and medical discharge after breaking an ankle during a parachute jump. One biographer has claimed that Jimmy faked being gay to earn an early release. The truth at last remains rather elusive. At the time of Jimmy's death, the first person called by his girlfriend, uh, Monica Daneman, I think that's how you pronounce it, Daneman, last to see Hendrick alive was Eric Burden of the Animals. Two years earlier, Burden had relocated to L.A. and taken over ringmaster duties from Frank Zappa after Zappa had vacated the log cabin and moved into a less high-profile Laurel Canyon home. Within a year of Jimmy's death, a reported prostitute turned groupie named Devin Wilson, who had been with Jimmy the day before his death, plunged from an eighth-floor window in New York's Chelsea Hotel. Oh, God, I wonder if I was... Although I'm not gay, being an artist, knowing some artists, I ended up going there once for an art-related thing, and I actually spend a night in Chelsea Hotel. What a weird place that is. This is before they did all the revamps and because of flood and all that. You know, it's back in what... Oh, what would that be? That would have to be a long time. Well, six, seven, eight years ago. I don't know. The guy I went with, too, he ended up uh, trying to make a move on me. So, <laughs> God. I just, you know what? I like being a hermit. Really like being a hermit. Back to the, okay, so if this, uh, the day of her death plunged from the eighth floor window of the New York's Chelsea Hotel. On March 5th, 1973, the following character named Michael Jeffrey, who had managed both Hendrick and Burden, was killed in a mid-air plane collision. Jeffrey was known to openly boast of having organized crime connections and working for the CIA. Sounds like Donald Trump. Uh, or Hillary Clinton, it doesn't matter. After Jimmy's death, it was discovered that Jeffrey had been funneling most of Hendrick's gross earnings into offshore accounts in the Bahamas linked to international drug trafficking. Years later, on April 5, 1996, Daneman, the daughter of the, of the wealthy German industrialist, was found dead near her home in a fume-filled Mercedes. A lot of these rich people like to kill themselves, don't they? Infinitely famous people. Oh, Jim Morrison, good old Jimmy, who had time, who for a time traveled in a home that traveled, who had lived. When somebody popping in on me? What are you guys doing to me? Huh? You listening? What a waste. I feel sorry for any of those guys that are paid to listen. I'm sorry. I, I, I am. I, I honestly, I sincerely apologize. And I'm sorry that you have to have the 
the life that you live. It's got to suck. May God have mercy on you. Jim Morrison, who for a time lived in a home on Rothdale Trail behind Laurel Canyon Country Store, may or may not have died in Paris on July 3rd in 1971. Events of that day remain shrouded in mystery. Rumor and the details of the story, such as they are, have changed over the years. What is known is that on the very same day, Admiral George Stephen, or Stephen Morrison delivered the keynote speech at the decommissioning ceremony for the aircraft carrier USS Bon Homie Richard, or Homie Richard, <clears throat> from where seven years earlier he had helped choreograph the Tonkin Gulf incident a few years after Jim's death, his common-law wife, Pamela Kirsten, dropped dead as well, officially of heroin overdose. Like Hendricks, Morrison had been an avid student of the occult with a particular fondness for the works of Aleister Crowley. According to supergroupie Pamela Desberas, he had also, quote, read all he could about incense and incest and sadism. Also, like Hendricks and Wilson, Morrison was just 27 at the time of his possible death. Next, Brandon DeWild a good friend of David Crosby and Graham Parsons, who was killed in a freak accident in Colorado on July 6, 1972, when his van plowed under a flatbed truck. In the 1950s, DeWald had been an in-demand child actor since the age of eight. He had appeared on the screen with some of the biggest names in Hollywood, including Alan Ladd, Lee Marvin, Paul Newman, John Wayne, Kirk Douglas, and Henry Fonda. Around 1965, DeWald fell into fell in with the Hollywood Young Turks, through whom he met and befriended Crosby, Parson, and various other members of the Laurel Canyon Club. DeWald was just 30 at the time of his death. Christian Furka, I guess that's how you pronounce it, F-R-K-A, former governess, governess for Moon Unit Zappa and the Zappa family former housekeeper at the log cabin died in November 5th, 1972, of an alleged drug overdose, though friends suspected foul play. As Miss Christine Perka had been a member of the Zappa-created GTOs, a musical act of source composed entirely of very young groupies. She was also the inspiration for the song 
Christine's tune, Devil in Disguise, by Graham Parsons, Flying Burrito Brothers. Burka may have been in her early 20s when she died, possibly even younger. Danny Whitman, guitarist slash vocalist slash songwriter with Neil Young's sometimes band Crazy Horse, died of an overdose in November 18, 1972. According to rock and roll legend, Whitten had been fired by Neil Young or by Young earlier that day during rehearsal in San Francisco. Young and Jack Nietzsche. Ichi Phil Spector's former top assistant had given Witten 50 bucks and put him on a plane back to L.A. Within hours, he was dead. Witten was just 29. Bruce Berry, a roadie for Crosby, Still, Nash & Young, died in a heroin overdose. In June of 1973, Berry just had just flown out to Maui to deliver a shipment of cocaine to Stephen Stills and was promptly sent back to L.A. by Crosby and Nash. Barry was a brother of Jan, Jan Barry and John or Jan Barry. It's either John or Jan. Or maybe it's, yeah, Jan Barry. For Jan and Dean, Dean Torrance, the Dean of Jean and Dean, Jan and Dean, had played a part in the fake kidnapping of Frank Sinatra Jr. just a couple weeks after the JFK assassination. The staged event was a particularly transparent effort to divert attention away from the questions that were cropping up after the initial shock had passed about the events in Dealey Plaza. Clarence White, a guitarist who had played with the birds, was run over by a truck driver and killed on July 14, 1973. White had grown up near Lanchester, not far from where Frank Zappa spent his teen years. At least one member of White's immediate family was employed at Edwards Air Force Base. The driver who killed young Clarence, just 29 years old at the time of his death, was given a one-year suspended sentence and served no time. Graham Parsons, formerly with the International Submarine Band, the Birds and Flying Burrito Brothers, allegedly overdosed on a speedball at the Joshua Tree Inn on September the 19th, 1973, just two months before his death, Parsons' Topango Canyon home had burnt to the ground. After his death, his body was stolen from LAX by the bur- Burrito's road manager, Phil Kaufman, and then taken back out to the Joshua Tree and ritually burned on the autumnal equinox. Kaufman had been an imprisoned buddy of Charlie Manson 
So he'd been imprisoned by the Charlie Mansons at Terminal Island. When Phil was released from Terminal Island in March 1968, he quickly reunited with his old pal, who had been released a year earlier. By the time of Graham's death, his family had already experienced its share of questionable deaths. Just before Christmas in 1958, Parsons' father had sent Graham along with his mother and sister off to stay with family in Florida. The next day, just after the winter solstice, Ingram Cecil Hanor Jr. caught a bullet in the head. His death was recorded as a suicide, and it was a, it was claimed that he had sent his family away to spare them as much pain as possible. It seems just as likely, however, that Cecil knew his days were numbered and wanted to get his family out of, of the line of fire. The next year, 1959, Graham's mother married again to Robert Elias Parsons, who adopted Graham and his sister, Avis. Six years later, in June 1965, Graham's mother died the day after a sudden illness laid at her, landed her in the hospital. According to witnesses, she died almost immediately after the visit from her husband, Robert Parsons. Many of those close to the situation believe that Parsons had a hand in her death. Very shortly thereafter, Robert Parsons married his stepdaughter's teenage babysitter. Following his mother's death, Parsons briefly attended Harvard University and then launched his music career with the, the formation of the International Submarine Band which quickly found its way to, where else, Laurel Canyon. Graham's death in 1973 at the age of 26 left his younger sister, Evis, as sole surviving member of the family. She was killed in 1993, reportedly in a boating accident at the age of 40. I've heard the background that is uh, uh, Portuguese, um, folk music along with the birds. Okay. Mama Cass Elliot, uh, the earth mother of Laurel Canyon, was whose circle of friends included musicians. Mansonites, young Hollywood stars, wealthy son of a State Department official, singer-slash-songwriter, writers, assorted drug dealers, and some particularly unsavory characters. The LAPD, once described as some kind of hit squad, died in, Lon- in, a, in the London home of Harry Nelson on July 29, 1974, and Nelson had been a frequent drinking buddy of John Lennon in Laurel Canyon and on the Sunset Strip. At 20 or at 32, Case Cass had lived a long and productive life by Laurel Canyon standards. Four years later, in a very in the very same room 
of the very same London flat, still owned by Henry Nelson, Keith Moon of The Who also died at the age of 32 on September 7, 1978. So initial press reports held that Cass had choked to death on a ham sandwich. The official verdict was heart failure. Her actual cause of death could likely be filed under knowing where too many of the bodies were buried. Moon reportedly died from a massive overdose of of a drug used to treat alcohol withdrawal. Amy Gossage, Gossage, Graham's Nash girlfriend, was murdered in her San Francisco home on February 13, 1975. Just 20 20 years at the time, she had been stabbed nearly 50 times and was bludgeoned beyond recognition. Amy's father a famed advertising-slash-PR, or propagandist executive, had died of leukemia in 1969, not long after her half-sister had been killed in a car crash. In May of 1974, her mother, the daughter of wealthy banking family, died as well, reportedly uh, cirrhosis of the liver. That left just Amy, aged 19, and her brother, Eben, aged 20, both whom reportedly had serious drug dependencies. Amy's brutal murder, cleverly enough, was pinned on um, Eben. Police had conveniently found bloodstained clothes along with a hammer and scissors sitting in the poor on the porch of Evans' apartment, looking very much as though it had been planted. A friend of Evans would later remark, perhaps quite tellingly, if Evan did kill her, I'm convinced he doesn't know he did it. Tim Buckley, the singer-slash-songwriter signed to Frank Zappa's record label and managed by Herb Cohen, died of a reported overdose in June 29, 1975, Buckley had once appeared on an episode of The Monkees. And like Monkey Peter Tork and so many others in this story, he hailed from Washington, D.C. He was the son of a mentally unbalanced and occasionally violent World War II hero. Buckley was just 28 at the time of his death, which reportedly shocked many of his friends and relatives. Despite having released nine albums during his short life, Buckley died in debt, which probably had nothing to do with his management by Cohen. Wink, wink. His son, Jeff Buckley, also an accomplished musician, managed to remain on this, quote, planet two years longer than than his dad did. He was 30 when he died in a bizarre drowning incident in 1997. Phyllis Major Brown, wife of singer-songwriter Jackson Brown, reportedly overdosed 
on Barbiturates. On March 25, 1976, her death was, you all should know the words to this song by now, ruled a suicide. She was just 30 years old. There are a few other curious deaths which could add here as well. We could add here as well, though they were more indirectly related to Laurel Canyon scene. Nevertheless, they deserve an honorable mention. Buddy Fuller, singer slash songwriter slash guitarist for the Buddy Fuller Four, was found dead in his car near uh, Gurum uh, Chinese Theater. Gurman's Chinese Theater on July 18, 1966, after being lured away from his home by a mysterious 2 o'clock to 3 a.m. phone call of unknown origin. Fuller is best known for penning his hit song, I, Found, I Fought the Law, which had just hit the charts when he suddenly committed suicide at the age of 23. There were multiple cuts and bruises on his face, chest, and shoulders, dried blood around his mouth, and a hairline fracture to his right hand. He had been thoroughly dosed with gasoline, including in his mouth and throat. The inside of the car was doused as well, and an open book of matches lay in the seat. It was perfectly obvious that the Fuller's killer or killers had planned to torch the car, destroying all evidence, but likely got scared away. The LAPD nevertheless ruled Fuller's death a suicide despite the coroner's conclusion that the gas could have been poured, that the gas had been poured after Bobby's death. Police later decided that it wasn't a suicide after all, but rather an accident. They didn't bother to explain how Fuller had accidentally doused himself with gasoline after accidentally killing himself. At the time of his death, one of Fuller's closest confidants was a prostitute named Melanie, who worked at PJ's nightclub where Buddy frequently played. The club was co-owned by Eddie Nash, who would, many years later, orchestrate the Wonderland Massacre. A few years after Bobby's death, his brother and bass player, Randy Fuller, teamed up with drummer Dewey Martin, formerly of Buffalo Springfield. Gary Hinman, a musician, music teacher, and part-time chemist, was brutally murdered in his Topanga Topanga Canyon home on July 27, 1969. Convicted of his murder was Mansonite Bobby Bessalui. I never can say that guy's name. I never... Bousselet. Bousselet. Bousselet, that's what it is. Bobby Bousselet, who had played rhythm guitar in the Laurel Canyon band known as Grassroots, 
Westlater achieved a fair amount of fame under the, the name Love. Janis Joplin, vocalist extraordinaire, was found dead of heroin overdose on October 4, 1970, at the Landmark Hotel, about a mile east of the mouth of Laurel Canyon, where she occasionally visited. Indications were that she had taken or been given a, quote, hot shot, and quote, many times stronger than standard street heroin. Joplin's father, by the way, was a petroleum engineer for Texaco. And though it might normally seem an odd coupling, it somehow seems perfectly natural in the context of this story that Janice once dated the great crusader in the war on all things immoral, William Bennett. Like Morrison, Hendrickson, Wilson, Joplin died at the age of 27. William Bennett, really? Dwayne Allman and Barry Oakley, lead guitarist and bass player for the Allman Brothers, were killed in a freakish similar motorcycle crash on October 29, 1971 and November 11, 1972, respectively. Allman was the son of Willis Allman, an U.S. Army sergeant who had been murdered by another soldier near Norfolk, Virginia, home of world's largest naval installation. On December 26, 1949, in 1967, Dwayne and his younger brother, Greg, then billing themselves as the Almond Joys, ventured out uh, to Los Angeles. While there, Greg auditioned for and was almost signed by Laurel Canyon band Poco, which featured Buffalo Springfield alumni Richie Foray and Jim Messina, Messina, as well as future Eagle Randy Manser. Dwayne was killed when a truck turned in front of his motorcycle at an intersection inexplicably stopped. Just over a year later, Oakley had a similar run-in with a bus, just three blocks from where Alman had been killed, or Omen. Following the crash, Barry was dust, had dusted himself off and declined medical attention, insisting that he's okay. Three hours later, he was rushed to the hospital where he died. Both Oakley and Omen were just 24 years old. Well, I'm almost done with this chapter, but I think I'll stop and we'll start with the a new list of deaths and acquaintances of death with Gary Thane. I apologize for all the mispronunciations. Uh, that's who I am. I'm a very flawed man. Many problems. Anyways, uh, there we go. Um, the journey... Yeah, now we look at the uh, militarization of the anthropo- uh, anthropology. We look at the militarization of of, of um, the media and of uh, the music industry. 
And you start to put everything together, you start to realize that you and I are under... Uh, well, there's a war being waged against us. Uh, a multiple front war, right? Uh, well, there's another term for it. Um, but anyways, the, the fact is, is that everything just about in our in our life, especially those of us who are part of the western leg of the Roman Empire, and in particular that of um, um, the British leg of the Roman Empire. And, well, let's just say there's just uh, a lot of evil, a lot of evil going on what they call the United States of America, and even more so in the United States. And once again, Washington, D.C. shows up, people from Washington, D.C. showing up in these scenes, just like it was in the hardcore scene in the 80s, where you got guys like Henry Rollins from Washington, D.C., and etc. an army rat that shows up and ends up being the lead singer for Black Flag, and uh, oh, it just goes on and on and on. And now we got this new, uh, I'm sure there's going to be a new round of uh, supposed suicides and deaths with uh, the lead singer of, um, I can't remember, I mean, a group, I, I, I like these bands, I can't think of his name. Uh, uh, well, Kurt Cobain, you know, and his death, and now we got the lead singer for, from Audio Slave and Soundgarden supposedly suicide, committing suicide. And be not surprised that in the next few years that that's, there's going to be uh, more rounds of eliminations, or or faked suicides, because these people, although many of them are truly talented, were put there for a reason in your face and on and. Um, all over the FM radio, which is weaponized, and um, television, etc., and um, and a lot of these people really, uh, you know, we noticed earlier in this chapter, chapter two, about these people all dabbling in Satanism, and it's really a thing. I mean, it's a real thing. I mean, I I don't understand it. I mean, I can't understand why, uh, you know, if you're so twisted of a person and you really, you know, you knew that in order to really make it in the culture that you lived in, you had to be part of it, that you would do it and take your chances, I guess. You know, you know I guess it's better to burn out than fed away kind of attitude, which I don't agree with. But it's, um Yeah. You know, and then you hear all this this crap about from like the religious right. Say, well, it's just, you look at how dysfunctional they are, and they all getting married, and they're all on drugs. Well, guess what? You'll find that same thing going on, and whether uh, where, wherever you go in walk of life, whatever walk of life in the Western civilization, and, and not even Western civilization, but humanity as a whole. So. Um, there's something deeper going on. It's not just 
dysfunction. It's not just about giving these people everything they ever wanted type of thing. Uh, there's more going on to it. I mean, a lot of these people are richly sacrificed. And a lot of the, you know, you hear the stuff, um, you know, I've been doing research on quote-unquote Bigfoot, Otter Man, Buffalo Man, believe it or not, um, uh, which is all the same thing. And just looking into that, and I'm not saying yay or nay to it all. I mean, I'm saying there's a lot of people that see something. Now, is there really, in the end of the day, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not one of those who are going to say that the Bible is inerrant, that it doesn't have any flaws. It's far from it. Anyone who does any real honest research and plugs their, you know, gets their head out of their ass will know that it's, that's not the case. But there's still a lot of things about it that make one wonder and question about one of the big things is the spiritual realm, a, another dimension, if you will, that seems to be around us, it influences us, us and our lives, and etc. Is it real? Or is it just, you know, uh, part of uh, an endless, a bag of tricks that are used by the ruling elite to mind-screw us all, to f uck us, if you will. And so, I don't know. I know one thing, I've had some weird things happen in my life. And they weren't drug-induced. And I've also had some weird things that happened that were drug-induced. <laughs> I, I don't take drugs and I don't drink or do anything anymore, but you know, you don't want experiments type of thing, stupidly, because of characters that you find in this book and their impression and because of the mon- monotony and mundane nature of our existence and it doesn't have to be that way but it's been created that way and, and to make us more pliable as far as being indoctrinated and conditioned to go a certain course of life instead of going our own course and you do you know you talk about public school system and the churches and and television and it's the total onslaught don't forget uh all the publishers and the publishing companies that publish the same old crap. I mean, it's hard, it's hard to find anything of any truth. It really is. Only partial truth at best. So, And uh, people will do just about anything for money. And uh, people want, you know, there's the folks out there who want to think that people are basically good. Well, that's not true. Basically, we are shitheads and evil efforts who will do anything to help sustain ourselves and maintain ourselves. And it's only when we're honest and we look in the mirror and say that that is the truth that we're capable of starting to change. Um, If we were not honest, then we will just go through life to say, no, I'm basically good as I screw with this person or that person, uh, cheat on that person and, and say, well, it's all part of the game of life, right? You know, the the fact of the matter, uh, something, Psychic and spiritual must change within you in order for you to be well. To realize that you you need to change. Now the problem is that everyone then goes to self help books and all that kind of stuff. In reality, it's just uh, I think from my own 
so I've been all the things that I've done. I've done all the things that everyone else has done. And it's really just, you know, having a belief in God and just being true to yourself. You know what I mean? Some people are meant to be evil. Some people are meant to be good and everything else in between. So, Some people are good do some evil stuff and some people that are uh, evil sometimes do some good stuff. Unfortunately, it seems like the use of that of both the characteristics that make us human are exploited and um, you have people like selling Satanism and all sorts of other crazy stuff. And, uh, oh well. I wish Dave McGowan was still around. That's one guy I wish was still around. Honestly, I wish he was around. By far one of the best guys I've ever listened to, read, and met. Got a chance to meet. And uh, almost had a chance to have a more deep... Unfortunately, I met him after they poisoned him and um, gave him cancer. (sighs) 